Welcome to the At TSN Hockey Every Other Friday Bobcast, featuring the original hockey insider, Bob McKenzie. Hey, that's me, answering your questions on hockey or just about anything else, within reason, of course. If you have a question you would like answered, email me at bobcast at bellmedia.ca. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T at bellmedia.ca. And we'll try to get it on the Bobcast. We were a blowout of wicked proportions. An accidental company. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Season 3, Episode Number 14 of the At TSN Hockey Bobcast. This one for Friday, April 5th, 2019. Sad to say it is not the Mail It In March Part 3, Part 3 edition of the Bobcast. It is, however, the all-business edition of the Bobcast. Because in no particular order, it is the almost the end of the NHL regular season edition of the Bobcast, the pre-draft lottery edition of the Bobcast, the pre-playoff edition of the Bobcast. So... I make my point. It's very busy. So let's not waste time dicking around. There is lots to get to today. And and let's start with the draft lottery. It goes Tuesday night. And thank goodness the National Hockey League has seen fit to go back to having the draft lottery when it's supposed to happen on playoff eve, on Tuesday night, before the playoffs begin, instead of at the end of the month of April. You know, I, I absolutely hated the last two, three years, whatever it's been, when they started having the draft lottery at the beginning of the second round of the playoffs. That two- to three-week delay, I mean, I hated that, and so did all the scouts and, and general managers who are trying to go to the under-18 World Championships here in the next week or two knowing where they pick, and it makes all the sense in the world uh, to, to know exactly whether you've got the first or the second or the third or what's your, what's your pick in the first round. So um, it only goes to say that the draft is one of my favorite events of the hockey calendar, so it only makes sense that I really like the draft lottery too. I'm a geek that way. And and I'm also kind of a fan of chaos and, and the prospect of the worst team in the league getting bumped down one, two, or even three spots does appeal to my sense of anarchy a little bit. So, of course, the Ottawa Senators, uh, the worst team in the league, uh, they don't even have a dog in this fight this year. They They traded that first pick to the Colorado Avalanche as part of, I guess we can now call it the ill-fated Kyle Turris, Matt Duchesne trade triangle with the Nashville Predators and the Colorado Avalanche. Um, and while many may chortle at that, I mean, now there's a word you don't hear very often, chortle, and as I say it, I, I think I understand why you don't hear it very often. Uh, anyways, as we may laugh or chortle at the Sens predicament, not having their own first-round pick in a year in which they finished dead last, I certainly wouldn't begrudge the Sens the decision that they at least made at last year's draft in 2018 to keep their first rounder and take Brady Kachuk fourth overall. Now, if you want to criticize the original tourist Duchesne three-way trade that uh, the Sens made, hey, knock yourself out. That's not a problem. But I would say the decision they made at the draft last year, regardless of what happens in the draft lottery on Tuesday, in other words, being 100% certain of getting Brady Kachuk last year versus having the whatever it was, the 18.5% chance of getting Jack Hughes or Capo Caco, whatever you, whoever you think is number one this year, that makes all the sense in the world to me, and I would stand by the, the Senator's decision to do that. And, and I don't mind saying that I said that 
before Brady Kachuk scored 20-plus goals for the Sens this season. He, he's just a tremendous hockey player. Um, I think he's going to score a lot of goals, and he's going to put up points. But I, I, I think, like his, his brother Matthew, um, the value of a guy like Brady Kachuk, there's a, there's a visceral element to the way he plays the game and the impact that he has on teams that he plays for and also the impact that he has on teams that play against him in terms of unsettling them and agitating them and, and all of those things. But I just think he's a hell of a player. And even if the Sens do lose the draft or win the draft lottery, um, which is losing for them, and Colorado does get the first pick, um, hey, listen, I hate the trade that the Sens made, um, but like the decision that uh, – that Ottawa made to take Brady Kachuk over the 18.5% chance of getting a Jack Hughes. Um, in any case, um, in honor of this draft lottery on Tuesday, maybe we should have a little bit of uh, a reflection on the whole process. And I really do find some of this, um, the history as far as the draft lottery goes, really interesting. Uh, started in 1995, maybe you didn't know that, and it, it kind of got off to what I would call an inauspicious debut. That is, the L.A. Kings won the draft lottery back then, and they went from number seven to number three, and that allowed them to take Aki Berg. So safe to say the L.A. Kings won the Aki Berg sweepstakes in the first year of the draft lottery in 1995. Now, Ottawa had the, the, the first pick that year and had the best chance of winning the draft lottery, but as I said, Los Angeles won it with the seven seed, and you could only go up four spots in the draft. So Ottawa still got to pick Brian Burrard first overall in 1995. Um, from 1995 to 2012, only the bottom five teams in the league actually had a crack at the number one overall pick because the NHL rule was you could only move up four slots. So when L.A. won the draft lottery, they could only go from number seven to number three. So all non-playoff teams were in the lottery, but only the bottom five could get number one. And, you know, after L.A. won that right to get Ackieberg third overall in 95, we had back-to-back years where the, the last place team prevailed. So in 96, Ottawa was last, and they won the lottery, and um, Chris Phillips was the first overall pick. In 97, the Boston Bruins were last overall. They had the first pick, and they won the lottery, and they got Joe Thornton. So I won't bore you with all the the year-by-year details uh, in 98 and 99 and so on and so forth. But it it is obviously, when you talk draft lottery history, you've got to talk about what happened in 2005. Now, of course, everybody remembers we lost the entire 2004-2005 season to the lockout. And as such, there was much discussion, what are they going to do with the, the draft? What's going to be the order of selection at the draft and who's going to get the first pick? And, well, since it just happened to be the Sidney Crosby draft, the National Hockey League came up with this brilliant idea from a marketing point of view. Hey, we're going to make all 30 teams in the NHL eligible for the number one overall pick, a franchise generational player in Sidney Crosby. So, boy, I remember that uh, that summer well. Everything was so delayed because of the lockout. I mean, they didn't even settle the lockout until into July. And uh, it was on July 22nd. I want to say it was the Sheraton Hotel. I can picture it on 7th Avenue in New York. 
we had to go in for to over the a couple of days there for the CBA to be officially ratified and assuming that it was and it, and it was obviously going to be on June 22nd they were going to have the draft lottery in the ballroom at the Sheraton Towers right there on 7th Avenue and uh, what an unbelievable scene an unbelievable drama and and that was where they basically made it a weighted a weighted system if I remember correctly, I'm kind of doing this from memory here. Um, every team in the NHL started with three lottery balls. And then they started having balls taken away if they had playoff appearances in recent years or if they'd had a recent number one overall pick. And at the end, everybody was guaranteed at least one lottery ball. But I think it was Pittsburgh. I want to say Buffalo, the Rangers, maybe the Blue Jackets. They actually ended up with three chances at Sidney Crosby, and I think there were a like, double-digit number of teams, 10 or 11 teams that had two chances at him and 15 or 16 teams that had only one chance at him. And it obviously came down to Pittsburgh and Anaheim for the right for Sidney Crosby. And, and the funny thing is that that felt like the draft, but it wasn't because we went to another boardroom in Ottawa at the end of the month for the actual draft that Sidney Crosby was drafted by the Penguins. But that was, uh, that was some high drama in, uh, in New York for the draft lottery. And it was really kind of uh, fun and a year like no other. Uh, not that you want to have an entire year off from hockey um, just to have uh, the, the fun and frivolity that went with that uh, 30 team lottery where most teams had uh, a real good shot at getting Sidney Crosby. In um, in 2000, now, wait a second. So, yeah, wait a second. So, 05 was the lockout year. Um, and then things were pretty much normal after that until 2013. And that's when the league got rid of the you can only move up four spot rule. And uh, so, in 2013, the league basically says, okay, all 14 non-playoff teams can win the lottery. And now it's 15 non-playoff teams, soon to be 16 when... Uh, when Seattle comes in and then in 2016 they made another change and instead of just making the first overall pick up for grabs in the lottery they made the anti-tanking legislation of the first the second and the third overall picks would all be part of the lottery so let's quickly review here recent history the from 2013 forward as we get set for Tuesday night so in 2013, Colorado goes from second to first, and they get to take Nathan McKinnon. In 2014, Florida goes from second to first, and they get to take Aaron Ekblad. And here's the, uh, the, the mother of all lottery wins. In 2015, the Edmonton Oilers go from third to first and get Connor McDavid. Okay, so now we switch the rules up because now it's 2016. Anti-tanking legislation in effect, numbers one, two, and three up for grabs. And the first year we did that, uh, Toronto uh, was last overall. They had the first seed and they got the first pick. And that, of course, was Austin Matthews. Um, but Winnipeg went from the number six seed to number two and got Patrick Line. And Columbus went from the number four seed to number three and got uh, Pierre-Luc Dubois. Uh, in 2017, it was probably the most chaotic, unusual um, uh, draft lottery ever, when you think about it. 
New Jersey went from number five to number one and was able to take Nico Heeshear. Philadelphia went from number 13 to two and was able to take Nolan Patrick. And Dallas went from number eight to number three and was able, able to take Miro Heiskanen. So that was unbelievable anarchy, draft lottery style. And I'll be curious to see if we have another year. Could you imagine on Tuesday night if uh, if the bottom three teams all get knocked out of the box by teams that were outside the top five? That would be incredible. Uh, 2018, of course, Buffalo retained the first overall pick. They went from one to one and took Matt Rasmus Dahlin. So we'll uh, be curious to see what happens uh here in 2019 on Tuesday night. Not surprisingly on this edition of the Bobcast, we have some draft lottery-related questions and and draft-related questions because the draft lottery sparks all sorts of talk about the draft. But let's let's start with the draft lottery. First question comes from Vinny in Whistler, B.C. Not my cousin Vinny, but Vinny in Whistler, B.C. says, Hi, Bob. I'm a big fan of your show and everything you do. Blah, blah, blah. (laughs) I love it, Vinny. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, Vinny says, what do you foresee if the Edmonton Oilers end up winning the draft lottery this year? Thanks for your time, Vinny and Whistler, BC. Man, oh man, could the Edmonton Oilers win an, another draft lottery? Wow. What do I foresee? A mushroom cloud? I, I foresee the rest of the National Hockey League going pretty much batshit crazy because the Edmonton Oilers win another draft lottery. And it's not just that the Oilers have won draft lotteries. Um, it's even the years that they don't win it, they kind of win. So, so let's have a look here. I guess in 2010, they have the first overall pick. They win the lottery. They retain the first overall pick. And they get Taylor Hall. In 2012, sorry, 2011, they've got the first overall pick. And New Jersey wins the draft lottery. But the four spot rule is still in effect. So New Jersey was sitting in the eighth spot. They could only move up four spots. So they move up to number four. And um, Edmonton gets to take Ryan Nugent Hopkins with the first overall pick. So they lost the draft lottery, but they still won because a team so far down the pecking order moved up only four spots, and it was New Jersey. In 2012, they had the second overall pick. Draft lottery happens, they win it, they get Nail Yakupov. Now, you can argue whether it was a big win or not, but nevertheless, they won the draft lottery. Um, Let's see, 2013, they were in the seven hole, and the draft lottery occurred, and there was no change. They ended up picking seventh. They got Darnell Nurse. So the draft lottery did not impact them negatively in 2013. In 2014, um, when Florida went from second to first to get Aaron Eckblad, Edmonton had the third overall pick. They were not affected because a team in second won it. So they were able to take Leon Dreisaitl, huge advantage uh, at number three. And so again, they lost the draft lottery, but they were not affected in any negative way in 14. We mentioned 2015, the mother of all draft lottery wins going from third to first and getting Connor McDavid, were the Edmonton Oilers. In 2016, um, the Oilers had the number two pick, and this was actually a year where the Oilers took it on the chin a little bit here. Um, they, in 2016, uh, Toronto 
went f- uh, retained the first overall pick, but Winnipeg moved up from six and got Patrick Laine, and Columbus moved up from four and got Pierre Luc Dubois. So the Oilers ended up going from the, the number two pick, the number two hole, to the number four hole, and they got Yessi Puliyarvi, and that hasn't worked out particularly well for them just yet. It's early, but nevertheless, that's the only time in recent memory where they really kind of. Um, really took it on the chin in the draft lottery, dropping two spots and out of the number two holes. Because if, if they hadn't dropped out of the, the number two spot, if they had the number two spot, they would have been picking uh, arguably Patrick Laine. Um, Patrick Laine looked pretty good playing along with McDavid. Hmm. Anyways, 2017, they, didn't, they weren't in the lottery. They were a playoff team. And, uh, so, and, and keep in mind, 2017 was the year of anarchy where the fifth seed, New Jersey, got the first pick. The, the, the uh, 13th seed got the second pick, Philadelphia. And the eighth seed got the third pick. So the Oilers picked a great year to make the playoffs and miss the draft lottery. So they were protected again. The lottery gods were shining down on them in 2017. In 2018, they dropped one spot from number nine to number 10. Uh, not a huge deal at that stage of the draft. Um, nevertheless, there's your history of Edmonton Oiler draft lottery good fortune. And, uh, Vinny, if they win the lottery on Tuesday night, the fur is going to fly around the rest of the National Hockey League. That's for sure. Uh, next question comes from Spencer Post. Hey, Bob, it's your favorite Californian Colorado Avalanche fan, Spencer. Good to finally email back to the Bobcast. It's been a long time. So the Avalanche are in a very unique position in that we have our own pick that will likely be in the 16 to 19 range, uh, depending on how the playoffs go. But we also have Ottawa's pick, which is now guaranteed to be a top four pick. How many other times in NHL history has a team traded their own first round pick for an impact player that turned out to become a lottery pick? And where did those picks end up in the lottery? Thanks, Bob. Can't wait to finally shake your hand at the draft in Vancouver. Cheers from Spencer. Well, Spencer, I think this is a really unique circumstance because most teams lottery protect for this sort of event. And the Ottawa Senators did not do that at the time they made the Kyle Turris uh, Matt Duchesne uh, three-way with Colorado in Nashville. And obviously, I'm sure they, they regret that now. Um, most teams uh, will lottery protect those things. You know, and there are teams that, that have won lotteries, that have moved up, that have traded around once they know that they've won the lottery or what have you. But I think the question you're asking me is is a lot more along the lines of who made a deal and really came to live to regret it because of the way it worked out at the draft. And and this was pre-lottery times, or, or maybe not pre-lottery. Yeah, it was pre-lottery times, actually. But maybe the granddaddy of, uh, of bad deals in that vein would have been on October 16th, 1998, when Toronto Maple Leaf general manager Floyd Smith, um, feeling like the Leafs needed an immediate boost, traded the Leafs' 1991 draft pick, first-round pick, to the New Jersey Devils for defenseman Tom Curvers. So Curvers came in and kind of stabilized the Leaf team that had gotten off to a bit of a slow start. But the Leafs still ended up being a 500 team that year. They lost in the first round of the playoffs to the St. Louis Blues. And Lou Lamarillo, no dummy, who's the general manager, obviously, of the New Jersey Devils, knew that the 1991 draft, 
um, was going to be the Eric Lindros draft and that uh, Lou um, was obviously hoping the, the more first-round picks you have in 1991, the greater chance you might end up with Eric Lindros. Now, um, and and as it turned out, the Leafs got off just to a horrible start in the 90-91 season. They, they went 1-9-1 out of the gate. Um, they had to fire coach Doug Carpenter. They hired Tom Watt. And uh, the Leafs were in a really bad way that season, and they were kind of on course to maybe finish last overall, um, which prompted Floyd Smith to actually make an in-season trade designed to prevent that from happening because they did not want that first overall pick that they traded away to um, to New Jersey to end up being uh, Eric Lindros. So they traded, uh, I think it was Scotty Pearson and a couple of second-round picks to the Quebec Nordiques for veteran players Lucien Deblois, Michelle Petit, and Aaron, Bro- Aaron Broughton. And I, I think it wasn't a coincidence that the Leafs made this deal with Quebec because that was their competition for last overall. And the, the, the Nordiques trading veteran players, Deblois, Petit, and uh, uh, Broughton, and taking Scotty Pearson and a couple of second-round picks made their team that much weaker. And from the Leafs' perspective, that assured that I think that Quebec would probably finish last overall, and Quebec was probably happy with that. Uh, the Leafs had no uh, incentive to finish last overall because Lou Lamarillo and the Devils owned their pick. So as it turned out, the Leafs ended up with uh, the third overall pick, or should I say the Devils ended up with the third overall pick. And if you know your 1991 draft history, you know that. Of course, the Quebec Nordiques took Eric Lindros. Um, That's a separate story unto itself. Um, And that the San Jose Sharks at number two took Pat Falloon. Um, They had a choice between Pat Falloon um, from the Spokane Chiefs um, of the Western League or some defenseman from the Western League uh, played in Kamloops. I think his name was Scott Niedermeyer. Anyway, San Jose took Falloon at number two. And the New Jersey Devils took Scott Niedermeyer at number three with the Leafs pick. So I don't know what's going to happen here with the draft lottery on Tuesday and um, and what have you. And I don't know if uh, Colorado is going to end up with Jack Hughes or not. But I've got to think that the impact of Scott Niedermeyer going to the New Jersey Devils might trump whatever happens um, with Ottawa's pick on Tuesday night. And And I don't know why, but... The Leafs seem to be involved in a lot of these deals that, you know, came back to haunt them in some way. Um, when Brian Burke traded for Phil Kessel um, in September of, of 2009, he gave the Boston Bruins a first and second round pick in the 2010 draft and a first round pick in 2011. And as we know, um, that first round pick in 2010 became Tyler Sagan for the Boston Bruins. And the first-round pick in 2011 became Dougie Hamilton for the Boston Bruins. And uh, Boston fans know, of course, their history that Sagan was traded. Um, Might have led to the Cup, Rich Beverly, and contributing to that Cup win in in 11. And that Dougie Hamilton was ultimately traded to the Calgary Flames. But in any case, um, the Leafs paid a a high price for lottery-type picks um, for Phil Kessel. Um, and never really reaped the full reward of having Phil in in their lineup. So I don't know, Spencer, if that specifically answers your question, but uh, I think it probably captures 
the spirit of the thing. A um, bunch of draft questions here, and as it relates to the lottery and, and draft rankings, um, maybe I'll read a few of them because they're very similar off the top here. Um, first one's from Jacob in Saskatoon. Hi, Bob. I'm a huge fan of the Bobcast and probably one of the youngest as I'm just 12 years of age. Anyway, I have a question involving the upcoming NHL entry draft. I've been watching Jack Hughes and become a big fan. So my question is, what are your thoughts on him and what do you think he could bring to the National Hockey League? Thanks from Jacob. Well, Jacob, that's very nice. A 12-year-old Bobcast fan. I'll have to uh, mind my P's and Q's and watch my language from here on in, knowing that there's 12-year-olds in the room. Um, But thank you for that, Jacob. Next question comes from Brianna Cups, who says, uh, Hi, Bob. Do you think Jack Hughes is the real deal? And what player would you compare him to? Also, I really appreciate your podcast and your different perspective on things. It's always nice to hear. And a third question, also in a a similar vein to that. Hi, Bob. Uh, First time, long time. Another brutal New Jersey Devils season has me looking to the draft lottery, hoping that Taylor Hall's luck brings us Jack Hughes. If you had to compare Jack Hughes with Austin Matthews and Jack Eichel, who do you think has the highest ceiling? Are there any current or former players that spring to mind when you think of Hughes' style? Thanks very much, and keep up the great stuff. That from Lou. Okay, three Jack Hughes questions. Great. Um, on Jacob's question, uh, just about my thoughts on Hughes, and on Brianna's question uh, as to who I'd compare him to, uh, let me say this. I first saw Jack Hughes play minor midget hockey in the Greater Toronto Hockey League for the Toronto Marlies. And uh, I remember going out to see him for the very first time. I'd heard much about him. And um, I was really blown away uh, at just how dynamic, exciting, creative he was. And um, he obviously, he's, he's growing. He's, I think he's listed as 5'10", 5'11", and he's 160-odd pounds, 165 maybe. Um, and he, he's gotten bigger and stronger. And But the, the first time I saw him, Right away, you notice that he's not the biggest guy in the world, but he was really fast and dynamic. Um, and, and even though he wasn't big, if this makes any sense, he, he appeared to be a very powerful skater um, and very tenacious on pucks. And you could see that he skates so fast and that the creativity level, the ability to make plays, to shoot the puck... Um, you know, the mind processed the game as quickly as the feet in the hands. And, and that's, a, that's a winning recipe for a really exceptional hockey player. So on the comparison thing, as soon as I saw him, I go, wow, that's, that's Mitch Marner with an extra gear. And anybody who knows me knows that when I saw Mitch Marner play junior hockey, I immediately jumped on board the Mitch Marner fan club. I just thought he was going to be an elite offensive player in the National Hockey League, and he certainly turned out to be that. Um, his level of creativity is ridiculous. Um, and, and and Mitch has gotten bigger and stronger and faster too. And you can see his skating has become a strength for him in the National Hockey League, where maybe right off the hop he had quickness, but he didn't seem that fast. But, you know, there was an extra gear that I felt Hughes had and he seemed to be that much more tenacious and strong on pucks than maybe even Marner, who was maybe more elusive um, at the same age. But uh, in any case, so, you know, the other comparison that people obviously wanted to make um, would, would be Pat Kane. Um, 
or or even Clayton Keller. And I think all those comparisons, and Kane's, of course, is a winger and, and Jack Hughes is a center. But, you know, Kane, highly skilled, elite, and winger who plays like a center. Um, so, yeah, I think, um, I think all those comparisons, Patrick Kane, Mitch Marner, uh, Clayton Keller, are all valid comparisons for the way that um, Jack Hughes plays. And, and the numbers he's put up have been absolutely exceptional. And there have been some maybe this year who, haven't, who, who thought maybe he should have dominated more. And we're going to talk in a second here about the draft rankings because just, I just did new draft lottery edition rankings. And uh, there are some scouts who think it's it's real close. And as I said, we'll talk about that in a second. But um, I, I just think Hughes is going to be a dynamite National Hockey League player. And um, now as far as Lou's question about comparing him to other great Americans, Austin Matthews and Jack Eichel, the obvious size discrepancy is huge. Um, Matthews and Eichel are stars in the National Hockey League especially Matthews in terms of being able to shoot the puck and score as many goals as he's going to score. Um, but I, I think I think Hughes can have a similar impact. Um, I think the consensus of most quote-unquote hockey people would be that Matthews' size and strength and ability to shoot the puck and score goals will put him at a level maybe higher than Jack Hughes. But I still revert back to seeing that 15-year-old kid play for the Marley Minor Midgets and just how fast and creative he is and how the feet, the hands and the brain process the game at such a high level. And he's certainly not Connor McDavid, but when you talk about feet, hands, brain being that lightning quick and the processing of it, um, you know, similar attributes. And again, not suggesting Hughes is McDavid because he's not, but uh, I still think he can have a huge impact in the national hockey league. All right, let's talk about those draft lottery edition rankings. I just did them this past week, the past few days, actually. Uh, they're up on tsn.ca with a story if you'd like to um, check those out in detail. Um, but 10 out of 10 scouts had Jack Hughes at number one. The same 10 out of 10 scouts who had him at number one in the preseason rankings in September. The same 10 out of 10 scouts who had him number one in the midseason TSN rankings in late January. But, and it's a big but, um, things have changed. Um, at the beginning of the season, there was an enormous gap between Jack Hughes and everybody else in the 2019 draft class. And at the mid-season rankings, I would say that um, a strong performance by Capo Kako, the Finnish winger, and Vasily Podkuls in the Russian winger, specifically at the World Junior Championship, and maybe a less than brilliant World Junior for Jack Hughes where he was injured. He played well, but uh, missed a number of games. Um, those factors conspired to make things a little bit closer at the mid-season rankings than they were at the, uh, at the beginning of the season. Um, but Kako continuing to put up goals at a, an astonishing rate in the Finnish Elite League. He scored his 22nd goal in mid-March in, I think it was, 45 games. Made him the highest-scoring under-18 um, player in Finnish Elite League history, going by Alexander Barkov, who had 21 goals in 2012-13 and did it in 53 games as opposed to 45 or 48 or whatever it was that Kako did it in. So um, when I surveyed the 10 scouts who, who picked Hughes at number one, uh, there were four or five of them who said in their mind Hughes is still clearly the number one guy. But there were four or five of them who said, you, you know what, the margin is razor thin right now. 
razor thin. Flip a coin, it's that close. And even though we've got Hughes at number one right now, we could change our mind over the next two, three, four, five weeks because there's some stuff coming up on the international hockey calendar that's going to impact the race significantly. Uh, Jack Hughes, of course, is playing for Team USA at the uh, uh, 2019 Under-18 World Championships. Those are going in uh, northern Sweden um, here next, starting this this coming week. And um, uh, Kako, though, isn't going to play at the Under-18. The Finns have decided... Uh, he played so well in the Finnish Elite League. They want him on the senior men's team that'll play at the the men's world championships that start in May in Slovakia. So a lot of teams, especially the teams that win the lottery on uh, on uh, Tuesday night, they would have loved to have seen Jack Hughes and Capo Caco going head-to-head in their own peer group in uh, in northern Sweden at the under-18 world championships. That's not going to happen. Now, there is a chance that Jack Hughes could also be invited to play for Team USA at the Senior Men's World Championship in May in Slovakia. In fact, Aaron Greger reported that on Insider Trading uh, yesterday on Thursday. So they may still be able to go head-to-head, but it wouldn't be the same as being in their own peer group uh, at the under-18s. But uh, in any case, it's uh, shaping up to be quite the uh, the finish here and uh, be curious to see who wins that lottery on Tuesday night and which way they may or may not go with Hughes and Kako. Now, um, Hughes, as I said, 10 out of 10 guys had him at number one. 10 out of 10 scouts had Kako at number two, so it's pretty clear that we've got a big two in this draft. But you could extend that to say we've got a big three because Vasily Podkoles and eight of the 10 scouts I surveyed had him at number three. The only other two prospects to get... Um, uh, a, a top three vote, a number three vote from uh, the scouts in this survey were Kirby Doc, the big center from the Saskatoon Blades, and Dylan Cousins, the big center from the Lethbridge Hurricanes. Uh, not surprisingly, Kirby Doc at number four on the draft lottery rankings, Dylan Cousins at number five, and Vancouver Giant defenseman Bowen Byram at number six. A couple of things to point out here. Uh, Hughes, Kako, Pod Colson, Doc, Cousins, and Byram going one through six. No change uh, from the midseason rankings. That was our top six at the end of January, and it is our top six as we head into the draft lottery on Tuesday. Uh, worth noting, Doc, Cousins, and Byram, uh, absolutely razor-thin margins between them. Uh, there were multiple NHL scouts that have Byram at number four on their list, so he's the clear number one choice as the top defenseman. Uh, in this draft. So you, your your Canadian content is Doc Cousins and Byram, four through six. Then it's three Americans on the draft lottery edition rankings. Alex Turcotte at number seven, up from number 11 at midseason. Trevor Zegras at number eight, up two spots from number 10 in midseason. And Matthew Boldy, the scoring winger from the U.S. Under-18 program, uh, at number nine, down two spots from number seven. Um, it's going to be a big year for the Americans with Hughes potentially going number one, uh, Turcotte, Zegras, Boldy, all uh, in the top 10. And rounding out our top 10, Philip Broberg, the uh, offensive defenseman from Sweden, who was number eight at the midseason rankings. He drops a couple of spots. Uh, just to round up the, uh, the, uh, the, the top 15 draft lottery edition, 
At number 11 is Victor Soderstrom, he, the Swedish defenseman from Brinus. He's moved up from number 17 on the midseason rankings to number 11. Number 12 is Peyton Krebs, the Kootenai Ice Center. Um, he's dropped from number 9 to 12. Number 13 is Arthur Kaliev, uh, the shooter from the Hamilton Bulldogs. He stays exactly where he was in the midseason rankings. Number 14 is a big move up for Thomas Harley, the Mississauga Steelhead offensive defenseman. He was number 22 on the midseason rankings, and he dropped to number 14. Uh, sorry, he moved up to number 14. Um, we had a tie at number 15, so I guess the top 15 is actually a top 16. Cam York, the de- offensive defenseman from the U.S. Under-18 program, he stays in the same spot he was in the midseason rankings at 15. And then Spencer Knight, uh, the goaltender from the U.S. 18 program, and I got a question coming up about him shortly. Um, he moved up from number 19 on the midseason rankings to arguably, I guess, what is number 16 here. So let's get to some of these questions on the draft and the draft rankings. This question comes from Walt. Hi, Bob. Love the Bobcast and your work on TSN. At last year's draft, Barrett Hayton of the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds was a player most people had going in the 10 to 20 region of the draft, but he ended up jumping to number five. I'm wondering if you've got any sleepers for the first round this year, any players that maybe aren't being lauded as a top five pick, but could maybe sneak up there if a team has a need like Arizona did for a center. That from Walt. Great question. And um, you're absolutely right, Walt. Uh, Barrett Hayton, we, I don't remember exactly where we had him rated last year, but I think he was top 10 or close to it. Uh, and if he wasn't top 10, he was right there. Um, but Arizona took him at five, and there were multiple other teams. I think the Chicago Blackhawks were going to take Barrett Hayton if Arizona didn't. So he was going in the top 10 no matter what because there were at least two or three teams that were ready to jump on him and I think that had a lot to do with the fact that there weren't many centers in last year's draft there was a real dearth of centers and I think the exact opposite is happening this year so it might make it a little less likely for sleeper picks coming out of nowhere I mean Jack Hughes is a center um Kako, I don't think he's a center there's some people saying he could project as an NHL center the scouts I talked to say he's a winger uh, Pod Colson's a winger. Kirby Dock is a center. Dylan Cousins is a center. Um, Alex Turcott at number seven is a center. Trevor Zegras at number eight is a center. So we're very center heavy. So the opposite uh, dynamic is at work here. As we look, you've only got two defensemen in the top ten. Bowen Byram at number six and Philip Broberg at number ten. But you do have Soderstrom at 11. And Thomas Harley moved up, and he's number number 14, and Cam York at 15. I suppose it's possible somebody might step outside their comfort zone for a defenseman in the top 10, but I'd, I don't, I'd be surprised. What I think is more likely, and one of the things, one of the surprises I had when I did the draft lottery edition rankings with the scouts was that Cole Caulfield of the U.S. Under-18 program wasn't a little higher. Um as I mentioned, Caulfield, let me grab this because one second here. In the midseason rankings, I want to say Caulfield was number 18, but let me double check that one second here. Yeah, he was number 18 on the midseason rankings, and for he was an honorable mention on the draft lottery edition. If, if, if there was a number 17 for our draft lottery rankings, 
Caulfield would have been it. So he would have only moved up one spot. He's been shooting the lights out, obviously. He's now established himself as the uh, the record holder for goals in the uh, U.S. National Development Team program. And uh, so, you know, going by all the all the greats, Patrick Kane, Austin Matthews, you name it, uh, he's done it. So, um, yeah, I, I thought that he might have moved up on the draft lottery rankings, but the scouts seem to have him in roughly the same spot. He's a fascinating guy because he's Alex Debrinkit 2.0. Um, you know, he's five, six and change. He's not big. He's really small, but he's the best. Most of the scouts you talk to say he's the best natural goal scorer in this draft. And so there's a guy where a team is picking in the top 10 and they really, really, really want goals. Um, you know, I think the mere fact that Caulfield's even listed as a first round pick tells you that he's overcome the size issue but maybe not fully overcome it because to, to be able to score goals at the clip that he scores and still not be perceived as a top 10 pick in this draft. Um, as I say, at the beginning of the season, scouts said to me, this kid's going to be a first rounder because of Alex Dabrinkit <laughs> because Dabrinkit has scored so many goals for the Chicago Blackhawks and he went in the second round and teams that looked at Dabrinkit and said too small, won't be able to score in the NHL. Now they're looking at Caulfield and saying, this guy plays just like Alex Dabrinkit. This is Debrinket 2.0. So let's make him a first-round pick. Is there somebody in the picking in the top 10 that would look at it and say, why wouldn't I take the best goal scorer in the draft in the top 10? So that might be my pick for a quote-unquote sleeper pick who's ranked outside the top 10 but could potentially go in the top 10. Next question comes from a Bobcast listener in Quebec City. Love Quebec City. Cafe Parmesan, right in the old city there. Love it. Uh, hey, Bob, uh, thank you for your work. It's greatly appreciated. It is strangely soothing, relaxing, relaxing to listen to your podcast. Maybe you should consider challenging Morgan Freeman for some documentaries narrating. Love it. On to it. Morgan Freeman. I don't have Rod Smith voice, but uh, nevertheless. Let's get down to business. Here's my question. Uh, hockey is changing rapidly, and we see that goaltenders aren't drafted in the first rounds anymore, and they tend to be signed or drafted really far. Their role is changing slowly into a support role. Could you see in the next 10 years or so a new way of drafting them where they could be excluded from the draft or drafted in a different draft? Talented forwards are required to build a winning team, and goaltenders seem not to be as essential as they used to be. Exhibit A, Toronto versus Montreal. Why use a high pick on a goalie? Sincere regards, J.P. Clermont from Quebec City. Well, merci beaucoup, JP, for your question about goaltending. Um, I don't see um, anybody altering the way goalies are selected in the draft to the extent that they would be excluded from the draft or drafted in a, in a, in a separate supplementary draft just for goaltenders. I think the, the beauty of the draft is you decide what you need, and if you want to go out and get it, by all means, knock yourself out talking to you New York Islanders and Rick DiPietro but you know what Marc-Andre Fleury worked out for the Pittsburgh Penguins and to the point you make about you're right the a lot of teams are scared off taking goaltenders in the first round and only I was looking at it here in the last six drafts so 18 17 16 15 14 13 yeah in the last six drafts entry drafts only two goalies have been taken in the first round. 
The win, the Washington Capitals took Ilya Samsonov, 22nd overall in 2015. And the Dallas Stars took Jake Ottinger, 26th overall in 2017. Ottinger just signed. Um, Samsonov is uh, going to be a factor here for the Washington Capitals. He'll uh, he signed now and uh, will be ready to go in short order, I would think. And um, and both of those guys, well, certainly Samsonov trends to be a, a really good goaltender. So the the notion of taking goalies in the first round still certainly exists. And um, you know as the Tampa Bay Lightning cruise to the President's Trophy, uh, the favorite maybe to win the Stanley Cup this year, the the Vezina Trophy um, favorite could well be Andre Vasilevsky, who in 2012 was taken 19th overall by the Tampa Bay Lightning. And then, uh, by the way, in that draft, 2012, Malcolm Subban was also taken in the first round, 24th overall. So... It's really up to the teams to decide if they want to roll the dice on that. Um, you know, we saw Jack Campbell go 11th overall to the Dallas Stars in 2010, and he was supposed to be the next big American goaltender. And the funny thing is that he's really hung in there and stuck with it and became an NHL goaltender, uh, regular NHL goaltender, backing up Jonathan Quick this year, but playing a significant number of games. And, um, you know, good for Jack Campbell sticking with it. That did scare a lot of teams off in, when a, a guy who was touted as a potential franchise goaltender, um, you know, the American version of Carey Price was kind of the way he was portrayed in that 2010 draft. And for Campbell to have as many difficulties as he had and to take as long as he did just to get himself to the point where he's a, a real credible backup goaltender in the National Hockey League, um, that does scare a lot of teams. But... Um, it's going to be fascinating, and that, of course, brings us to this year. As I mentioned when I did the draft ranking, Spencer Knight from the uh, U.S. Under-18 program, who was number 19 on our midseason rankings, is moved up tied for 15 um, with Cam York on the draft lottery edition rankings. And I guess when I talk sleeper picks as to somebody who might sneak into the top 10 for that last question from uh, about the... Uh, the potential sleeper picks where I talked about Cole Caulfield, maybe I got to put Spencer Knight in that category too. Um, everybody I've talked to said this guy can't miss. And I, and I know the echo of what I just talked about with Jack Campbell is kicking around there, but there are so many people connected with USA hockey and, and NHL scouts who believe Spencer Knight is very much the real deal. A six foot three, almost 200 pound goaltender who's so athletic and so good at what he does and that this guy has a chance to be the greatest American goaltender ever. Um, you know, that's that's obviously uh, a lot of hype there. And uh, and John Gibson is a hell of a goaltender in the uh, in the National Hockey League right now. Um, but uh, I'll be interested to see if there's if there's a team that would say goaltending is such a primary need for them that they would roll the dice on Spencer Knight. Um, in the top 10 or 12 or, or whatever. But um, I can't imagine Spencer Knight doesn't go in the first round, and the scouts I talk to suggest he's much more likely to go in the top half of the first round than the bottom half. But again, that's that's a very specific positional need. So a uh, great question from J.P. Claremont in Quebec City. 
Merci beaucoup. All right, that's enough on the draft, the draft lottery. Good luck to all the teams that are in the draft lottery on Tuesday night. I'll be watching, waiting. Uh, should be fun. Looking forward to it. Uh, yeah, let's just switch gears a little bit here. So if it's the end of the season, it must mean it's awards time. And I know it is because I got my ballot via email the other day. And I looked at it and I went, oh. I got more trepidation this year about the awards than any year in the past. And it's and it's not because of anything that's happened over the course of the year, because I think a lot of the first choices for a lot of the major awards are kind of slam dunks this year. I just got this nagging feeling that I don't feel as qualified for some reason. And maybe I didn't watch quite as many games this year. Maybe I slacked off a bit. Maybe I let mail it in March start six months early. I don't know. But and, and maybe I didn't do it. And this might be it. I, I maybe didn't do as much homework along the way. For whatever reason, I got too busy at the mid-season point this year, and I usually do a coach's poll with, for the award winners and, and, and stuff, and I didn't do that this year. And so now I feel like I'm, the moment of truth is here. I've got to fill out my ballot before the playoffs begin on Wednesday, and I don't really feel like I have a good handle on, on the awards. Now, as I said, some of these winners are really obvious. I, I can tell you right now, I'm voting Kucherov for the Hart Trophy. I'm voting Elias Pettersson for the Calder, uh, Mark Giordano for the Norris. But award voting, especially since it's gone public and our ballots become public, you, you can't afford to make a mistake, <laughs> otherwise you get humiliated, uh, which is fine. I don't mind. I can take humiliation if I make a mistake. But you don't want to make a mistake for lack of effort or... Um, not doing your homework and I feel like I'm in a crunch time got to get this ballot done and I got to do way too much research and in previous years I would have already started this process a week or 10 days ago and I in previous years I would have already literally spent 20 hours talking to people crunching numbers asking people in the analytics community what they think asking 200 hockey men what they think um, and I haven't done any of that and now I'm I'm all full of angst about it. So I don't know how, how I'm going to do it this year, but um, I'll figure it out. And and the funny thing is, as I said, most, most of the, a lot of the choices are obvious. Outside of the Selkie, I never know who to pick in the Selkie. That's the hardest one. You know, everybody's got an idea on what defensive forward means. Jesus, I don't know. Anyways, um, but the... the People always freak out over your ballot, not on who you pick at number one. It's the it's the three, four, and fives <laughs> that that kill you, and and so if you leave out somebody who they think should be number three, I mean, at the end of the day, it's probably not not going to make a huge difference as to who wins or loses. But it is what it is, and uh, don't want to make a stupid mistake. And I know I'm going to be rushing it this year, so that's my way of my disclaimer of telling you in advance. That if my ballot sucks and there's some really bad picks on there, too bad. Cut me a break. Whatever. Um, yeah, way too much effort required on the Selkie. I'm going to have to get going on that. Um, the Norris outside of Giordano will be tough. The, the one thing, the one um, observation <laughs> that I want to make here is that it's funny. I mentioned Kucherov being the guy, and I had a couple of people say to me, I don't know, you know, Kucherov... Playing for the Lightning, they got so many good players. He's got Stamkos, he's got Point, he's got Hedman. And, and I go, hold on a second here. Time out. Time out. So let me get this straight. Last year, 
couldn't vote for Connor McDavid at number one because he wasn't on a playoff team and he didn't have enough good players around him. Basically, that's what it was. So Connor McDavid's so good, but he plays on a bad team with not enough players around him. So you can't give him the heart. And now I say Kucherov and some people are saying, I don't know. I don't know. He's got all these really good players around him. So now, <laughs> is this right? We're going to eliminate the guy who doesn't have any enough good players around him, and we're potentially going to eliminate the guy who has too many good players around him playing on too good a team. So what are we going to do? We're only going to pick really, really, really good players on teams that just barely managed to make the playoffs. You know, if that was the case, then Nathan McKinnon... Now that Colorado's won the got a playoff spot, Nathan McKinnon should win the Hart Trophy because he's such a good player on a team that barely got in. Um, and I think you get my point. Kucherov, he's he's the best player this year. And some people would say that's going to bring up the whole McDavid argument again. But I mean, Kucherov had a season for the ages, so let's not go too crazy on uh, all of that. So, anyways, uh, let's get to some award questions here let's beat a few things up the first question i really like it's from uh joseph and it's actually an old question it's from new year's day tuesday january 1st and it says hi bob if robin leonard continues his pace does he deserve consideration for the masterton trophy at the end of the year his courage to address mental health issues is inspiring will the nhl be the first league to acknowledge it as the disease that it is, Happy New Year. And as I said, Joseph sent this email on January 1st, and it was a very prescient email at that. Um, Robin Leonard has had a fantastic season um, playing for the New York Islanders. And, um, and and when Joseph's, when I was reading this email from the archives and including it in the uh, Bobcast this week, I went back and reread the September 13th 2018 first person article that uh, Robin Leonard penned for the athletic. And it was absolutely amazing where Robin Leonard basically puts his whole life out there for everybody to see. And um, he talks about being diagnosed as bipolar um, and his mania and, and how manic he has been and how he self-medicated with alcohol and sleeping pills and what have you. And so he really opened up about the, the depths of his, his substance abuse and addiction, the depths of his mental health disorders, and, and how all of that affected him and his family. And so um, the Masterton Trophy has, has kind of morphed into find the guy who had the worst set of injuries or illness or whatever and came back from it. Um, and I think that overlooks a lot of really good candidates who just, when you talk about the Masterton for perseverance, dedication, and and uh, all of those other great qualities, just on performance and, and overcoming those other odds that don't relate to a, a significant injury or an issue like substance abuse, but I just filled out my Masterton ballot as fate would have it. And, um, I know we're probably not supposed to say who we picked, but, um, Robin Leonard was number one on my ballot because I just think the level of performance that he had combined with 
finding out from him the depths to which he suffered mental health issues and and alcohol and drug related issues um just incredible so um i'd I'd like to see leonard win it i hope he does but I also think that guys like Joe Thornton and Zidane Chara and, and again, I, I mentioned Jumbo Joe, you know, he came back from ACL surgery and what have you. But even quite aside from that, just maintaining his, his level of performance for as long as he's done it uh, and creating a winning culture for the San Jose Sharks. Zidane Chara doing what he does just to keep himself in tip-top shape. Um, guy's a specimen, 40 years old and and doing what he's doing for the Boston Bruins and, and keeping them at, at or near the top of the standings all season long. I, th- I think we've got to make sure that the Masterton Trophy doesn't just become an overcoming injury trophy and that guys like Chara and Thornton, aside from the injury part of what he's recovered from, um, are still eligible and, and front and center for, for that type of award. Uh, okay, next, uh, Vincent from Montreal says, Hi, Bob. First things first, I would like to thank you and congratulate you for your podcast. I listen to many hockey podcasts, and yours is always the one I anticipate the most. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you, Vincent. I have a question regarding the Vesna Trophy. As we know, it's the general managers of the league who vote for this award. I was wondering, with all your knowledge, if it ever happens that a GM doesn't vote for his own goaltender in order to save some money on his next contract. For instance, Andre Vasilevsky, whose contract by the end of 2020... Uh, whose contract is up by the end of the 2020 season. Do you think that Julian Brisbois could vote against him to try and save some money so Vasilevsky can't use this award as leverage? Thanks for reading my question. And again, keep up the good work on that, Vincent from Montreal. Uh, I'm just going to assume here, and I should have checked this, um, but I'm going to assume that part of the deal with the general managers is that you can't vote for your own goaltender. And... um, so that would probably uh, take the GM off the hook on that. But uh, as I said before, I'd be surprised if Vasilevsky doesn't win the Vezina this year. Lots of great goaltenders, but uh, Vasilevsky's been pretty special. But again, like he could get penalized for being on Tampa Bay. They'll say, well, what a team in front of him. You know, Victor Hedman, Norris candidate, John Cooper, um, uh, Jack Adams candidate, uh, Nikita Kucherov, uh, Vezina favorite, sorry, not Vezina, Hart favorite, and, and Stamkos and all these other great players. Braden Point, um, I don't know. We've got to stop penalizing guys for playing on a good team sometimes and just reward excellence. Okay, next question on awards comes from Roger. Hi, Bob. Big fan of you and the Bobcast. Do you think the NHL is missing out on an opportunity by not having awards named after Wayne Gretzky and Bobby Orr? For Orr, I think introducing an Art Ross-type trophy for D-men would make sense. For Gretzky, I think borrowing from Australian Roost football might be interesting each year. The Australian, the AFL awards the Brownlow medal to the best and fairest player in the league. And he goes on to explain the difference between the best player in the Ferris League, Ferris player. I wonder what your thoughts are on this topic or if you know if the NHL has any appetite for expanding the current number of awards. Uh, that's Cheers, Roger from Hamilton, Ontario. Um, well, listen, I don't have a problem with naming uh, awards in honor of Wayne Gretzky and Bobby Orr. And I understand why a lot of the traditional names, the Hart Trophy, um, you know, we, we changed the Lester Pearson, the NHLPA changed the Lester Pearson award to the Ted Lindsay trophy. So I understand those. Um, 
and you know should the jack adams award become the the uh you know the toe blake or the scotty bowman award you know i wouldn't have a problem with that necessarily although there's still part of me with the tradition even though you know the Hart Trophy wasn't named for a player in the National Hockey League. It's still traditional to be called the Hart Trophy, and and I understand the Con Smythe. You know, if you're gonna if you're gonna start changing all all these awards from the old owners and you know hockey people or the donators uh, of trophies back in the day, you know Lady Bing, etc., etc., etc. You can go right down that road and and change it. The one thing I'd, I'd caution against, though, and and as I say, I don't philosophically have a huge problem with it. There's a little bit of a nagging doubt about changing everything just for the sake of change, but I also understand why people want to honor players of the game more than owners who suppressed their salaries back in the day and what have you. But I I, I also wonder, you know, what happens a hundred years from now if somebody comes along who completely eclipses everything that Wayne Gretzky and Bobby Orr did. Is it likely to happen? No. Is it possible that it could happen? Yeah. So somewhere down the line, you know, a hundred years from now, is there some movement afoot to say, you know what, we got to get rid of this Wayne Gretzky trophy because Wayne Gretzky's uh, achievements pale in comparison to fill in the blank, who's done so much more for this game than Wayne Gretzky. Or a similar thing with some defenseman with Bobby Orr. Can't see it happening, but anyways, um, I, I'm I'm kind of opposed to more awards, and I know that there's probably room for an offensive defenseman award, but I don't know. Then then that kind of compromises the whole Norris Trophy and the way people are voting on it, and you can end up with the best offensive defenseman and the Norris Trophy winner being one and the same, or should I call it the Bobby Orr Trophy? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I'm kind of awarded out for a variety of reasons. We'll finish up the awards portion of the Bobcast here with a couple of questions regarding the coaching, uh, the Adams Trophy, um, or should I call it the Toe Blake Trophy. Uh, hey, Bob, longtime listener. With Craig Berube getting the Blues and up and running towards a playoff spot, and yes, of course, they've not only <laughs> clinched a playoff spot, but threatening to win the division still. Uh, Is there any chance that Berube gives Barry Trotz a run for his money in the Jack Adams race? I understand that Trotz has made something out of nothing with the Owls, but Berube has taken a shipwreck of a team under Mike Yo and turned them into an elite squad since the start of 2019. Thanks for your time, Bob. That's Robert from Cape Girardeau, Missouri. Um, Similar type question here from Dino Puglia. I'm not even going to pronounce his last name. Sorry, Dino. Dino P., uh, it could be Pugliese, could be Pugliese. I think it's Pugliese. Anyways, Dino, <laughs> just curious. I hear talk of Coach of the Year on TSN for John Cooper, Barry and Trotz, even Claude Julian. Not a word about Bruce Cassidy, considering injuries and where they were in the standings uh, to being close to third overall in the year. Someone's best-kept secret is watching the Bruins turn in a pretty good season. Thanks for the great commentary always, Dino. I should point out to Dino... Uh, Sent his email on Friday, March 15th, 2019. And um, uh, Robert, uh, his email came in on February 15th, 2019. Okay, a couple of things to point out here. Uh, Number one, on Dino's question. 
definitely think that Bruce Cassidy deserves consideration for the award. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And I think you're right on the Bruins. They had a significant number of injuries throughout the season. And, uh, and Bruce Cassidy kept them right at the top, uh, battling Tampa as best anybody could battle Tampa this year. Um, but the Bruins have been amongst the top two or three or four teams the whole season long in spite of a pretty significant list of injuries. So I, I think Cassidy deserves consideration. Uh, as far as Craig Brube goes, deserves serious consideration. And it's funny because everybody wants to give Jordan Binnington all the credit, and he deserves a lion's share of that. But I think Craig Berube deserves a lot of the credit too. Um, I do think that Cassidy and Berube are going to have a tough time knocking Barry Trotz out of the box for what he's done with the New York Islanders, given everything um, that goes on. But, you know, and I can already hear the yelling from Tampa Bay, um, what about John Cooper? And, uh, you know, Barry Trotz himself said John Cooper should be coach of the year. And, and maybe this is a year where... The, the Tampa Bay Lightning were so much, so extraordinary, so much better than everybody else that we don't give the Jack Adams trophy, the Jack Adams award rather, to the, the coach who did better than anybody thought his team was going to do, which has really become the definition of the trophy if you, if you really think about it. Um, so I don't know. It's, it, for me, the winner is either John Cooper or Barry Trotz. I don't have a vote on it, thank God. Um, so I don't have to pick a winner. But if I did, I might err on the side of John Cooper this year. And I know everybody's going to say he's got a Vezina Trophy winning goalie in Vasilevsky. He's got a potential Norris caliber defenseman in Hedman. He's got a potential Hurt Trophy winner in Kucherov. He's got Stamkos, who is at least in the conversation for part of the year for Rocket Richard, and he's been shooting the lights out lately. Braden Point, who's been so good, and all on and on it goes. But... Um, you know, I know the uh, TSN Quizmaster, by the way, he always thought two things. That that there's, if you look at the history of the Adams Award, so many coaches who are in their first year with a team win it. Um, it's uncanny how many times the Adams Award goes to a coach who's in his first year with the team. And so much so that the Quizmaster once, when he was at the Hockey News, um, proposed that, that first year coaches in their first year with a team are not eligible to win the Jack Adams. Um, that never picked up any traction, obviously, but nevertheless, it was a point worth making. And um, the other thing the Quizmaster says is the Jack Adams Award should be like the NHL Executive of the Award and voted on after the playoffs or just before the Stanley Cup final as opposed to the regular season. Anyways, I digress. Uh, John Cooper, Barry Trotz, one of them's winning the Coach of the Year, but Berube, Cassidy, and Billy Peters, and on and on and on it goes. Lots of really great choices for Coach of the Year this year. Alrighty then, you know what time it is? Yeah, it's Untuck It time. Damn right. Got the Untuck It read coming up here, and it's uh, end of the regular season, beginning of the playoffs. This is the all-business edition of the Bobcast, so we're going to get down to a, a very serious read on Untucket. Um, should point out that uh, I've got two objectives for the month of April, aside from watching a lot of hockey, playoff hockey. Uh, I'm going to try and lose, I don't know, 5, 10 pounds if I can over the next month. And then I'm going to go to the Sherway Gardens retail store of Untucket, and I'm going to get a whole spring wardrobe 
And untucked shirts are fantastic. Not too long, not too short. Uh, and it's never a good look when you untuck that long, bulky dress shirt. And untuck it makes shirts specifically designed to be worn untucked. You know what? You don't want a, a, a shirt that's too short. That wouldn't do well for me. Uh, but you don't want to do a, a shirt that's too long either. So it's the untuck it scientifically determined the correct length for a shirt. And they're a go-to for any occasion from casual to dressy. So many sizing options. You're a beanpole. They got you covered. You're a little chunky. You know how it feels. Got you covered. Anyways, go to untuckit.com. Check out all the new spring arrivals. Use the promo code BOBCAST for 20% off your purchase. And as I said, if you happen to be in the neighborhood, go visit Untucket in their first Canadian retail store in Sherway Gardens. Or you can shop online anywhere. Untucket.com. Use the promo code BOBCAST. Look good this summer. I know I will. So there you go. Thanks to the Untucket folks, as always. Appreciate their support. Uh, very limited listener feedback, not because we didn't have lots of it, but because this podcast has gone on pretty long and I had to edit on the fly. So I'm going to, this one's a little unusual because when Jeff Blaschel got a two-year contract extension uh, in the last week or so from the Detroit Red Wings, a lot of Red Wing fans seem to be upset by it. Um, and uh, John Robertson sends the following in with the subject line that says, time to give Jeff Blaschel some love. Hi, Bob. I know the Detroit Red Wings are not playoff bound and have not been a playoff contender all year. However, I think it is time to acknowledge the job Jeff Blaschel has done in Detroit, developing his young players. Blaschel is not responsible for the roster he has at his disposal, but he has not complained and has indeed driven his team to a high level of accountability. The young players have continued to show steady improvement, especially Andreas Athanasiu and Anthony Mantha, especially in regarding to their effort and consistency. Considering that the Red Wings have only been able to dress their expected six D-man core uh, once during the season, Kronval, uh, Green, DeKaiser, Erickson, Daly, Chalowski, and traded arguably their most consistent D-man this season, Nick Jensen, at the deadline, the defense has shown steady improvement over the season. The NHL is about results, and from my view, the Red Wings staff have produced a more disciplined, consistently high-effort, fun-to-watch product this season. The team has the highest number of one-goal differential games in the league. We can dream about how many more of those will come out on the victory side once Philip Zadina, Joe Valeno, Evgeny Svechnikov, Denis Cholosky, Tara Hirose, and uh, Dennis Rasmussen um, it's not Dennis Rasmussen, Michael Rasmussen. There we go. I got, I got my Rasmussen picked up for a second. Michael Rasmussen truly arrived. Let's hope it is next season. Adding a top five pick in the 2019 draft. No lose for Hughes in this locker room. Could only improve their chances of making the playoffs next season. Regards, John Robertson. And uh, so there you go. Um, an unpopular opinion with some Red Wing fans. But I think a lot of what John outlined in his listener feedback uh, from his email of Friday, March 29th, is precisely the way that Ken Holland feels about it. And I think the Red Wings are going to be aggressive in the offseason, as aggressive as they can be uh, with, with free agency. And we know that Ken Holland was on record as talking about at least considering the viability of offer sheets 
in this offseason. So let's keep an eye on the Red Wings, see what happens. Oh, wow, where'd the time go today? I think we're like we're I think we're probably close to 75 minutes in on this uh, Bobcast, and um, we haven't even talked about one of the subjects that I really, really, really wanted to talk about. But we're going to anyways. A little overtime here. Uh, I said it was an all business edition of the Bobcast. I meant it. We're we're, we're working overtime here. Um, okay, so this is uh, this next letter is from Travis in Akron, Ohio. Hi, Bob. Big fan of the Bobcast. Thanks for taking time to do it every other week. My question is draft-related, but not specific to this year's prospects or the lottery system. I've always been confused by the rules about drafting, signing NCAA players. It's my understanding that if a team does not sign their drafted prospect or a player goes undrafted by the time they turn 20, they become an unrestricted free agent, freeing them to sign with whoever they like. A couple of questions you can probably answer quickly. Can you explain the rule a bit in detail? How did this rule come to be? Why do teams hold the rights to their drafted players for such a short amount of time? Why does this only apply to North American players? It just seems to me that this rule gives an unfair advantage to teams that are currently successful in an original six team. I never hear about these NCAA uh, UFAs signing with Arizona or Vancouver, just Boston, New York, etc. I'm not aware of a similar system in other major professional sports leagues. Thank you for your time, Travis in Akron, Ohio. And in the same vein, I got uh, an email from Kevin Hanlon the other day. Hi, Bob. I've been listening since episode one and still really look forward to listening every two weeks. I have a question regarding the U.S. college unrestricted free agent loophole in the CBA. With all the talk around Adam Fox, who's just the latest case of the situation, I'm curious how this rule came into being as opposed to draft re-entry required by unsigned CHL players and how has it endured to this point, I appreciate all the great work done by you for the benefit of so many. Thank you, Kevin Hanlon. Okay, this is the subject that I did want to get to on this Bobcast um, because it's obviously very much in the news. Um, Kevin mentioned Adam Fox. Adam Fox, of course, drafted by the Calgary Flames, stayed in Harvard. Calgary traded him as part of the Dougie Hamilton, Michael Furland transaction uh, to Carolina. And Carolina was informed once Harvard was eliminated from the NCAAs that it's a lot less likely than more likely that he's going to sign with the Carolina Hurricanes. And he has the option because of the CBA, Collective Bargaining Agreement, to go back and finish his final year at Harvard, graduate, and August 15th of 2020 um, become an unrestricted free agent. That really bothers a lot of people. Um, also in, in, in a similar vein, but somewhat different, um, I reported this week that Chase Prisky, who's a defenseman who scored, I think, 17 goals in his senior season with the Quinnipiac Bobcats of the ECAC. He was drafted in 2016 in the sixth round by the Washington Capitals. Um, he let it be known to Washington that he wasn't interested in signing with them. And because he's a graduating senior, he officially becomes an unrestricted free agent on August 15th. Um, there are many, many more examples of this. And there's different rules that apply to different age guys, depending on when, when and where you were drafted. But um, anyways, uh, I could cite Will Butcher. Uh, drafted by Colorado, became a free agent, went to New Jersey. Alex Kerfoot, drafted by New Jersey became a free agent, went to Colorado. 
it still tickles me that that happened in the same offseason, if I remember correctly. It's almost like a trade. Colorado, New Jersey trading Will Butcher for Alex Kerfoot. Um, Cal Peterson, a Buffalo draft pick. Uh, Notre Dame uh, ended up going free agent, signing, going the free agent room, signing with the, uh, the LA Kings. Some of the more celebrated ones of our time. Jimmy Vesey, uh, drafted by the Nashville Predators. Um, went, uh, graduated from Harvard. Um, had his rights traded to Boston. I'm sorry, to uh, Buffalo. Didn't sign with them and signed as a free agent with the New York Rangers. Uh, Justin Schultz, drafted by Anaheim way back when. Um, didn't go back for his senior year. Declared himself an unrestricted free agent and was signed by the Edmonton Oilers since, of course, traded to the Pittsburgh Penguins. Uh, Kevin Hayes, um, drafted by, what was it, uh, Calgary? No, Chicago, sorry, yeah. Kevin Hayes, drafted by Chicago, ended up signing with the New York Rangers. Um, the granddaddy of them all a long time ago, Blake Wheeler, uh, drafted by Boston, uh, drafted by, sorry, <laughs> getting all mixed up here, drafted by Arizona. Um, ended up signing with Boston, calling his own shot. So, as I said, this uh, this rule or loophole, as Kevin called it, um, really upsets a lot of people who don't like the fact that some of these kids get to call their own shot. Um, and why does a college player get to do this, but a major junior player doesn't? Now, as for Travis's from Akron, Ohio's question, he had it a little bit wrong in there. Um, he had said, uh, let's see here. He had said, uh, it's my understanding that if a team does not sign their drafted prospect or a player goes undrafted by the time they turn 20, they become an unrestricted free agent. That is not the case for college players. Um, the, I don't want to go into great detail on the rule because it's multiple pages of the CBA. It's Article 8.6, and it's 8.6 C1, C2, C3, C4, C5, and there's a whole bunch of legal gobbledygook all over the place about this. But here's the bottom line. A lot of players, if they finish their four years, they get drafted, and if they finish their four years at college, they get to become an unrestricted free agent. Um, or they have the ability to leave after their junior season and uh, deregister from school and become an unrestricted free agent. The bottom line is some college players have this ability to wait it out and become an unrestricted free agent. In major junior hockey, a player gets drafted when he's 18 years old. If after two years he hasn't signed with the team that drafted him, he goes back into the NHL draft. So there's a re-entry provision there um, that college players don't have to go through. And and people wonder why is there a difference between the two? Um, here's the best explanation I can give you for that. Everything happens in junior hockey faster. Um, in, in junior hockey, you're drafted into junior hockey as a 16-year-old. So you play your 16- and 17-year-old season, then you get drafted into the NHL. Um, and then you've got two years to sign with your team or not, and then you get redrafted. And if you get redrafted, that team has your rights for two years, so you get to be an unrestricted free agent so if you so choose, and nobody does this, but think about it for a moment. Drafted at 18 in, in Major Junior, 
redrafted at age 20, potentially unrestricted free agent at age 22. Think about that for just a moment, because the parallel is college players, most college players don't get to college until they're 18 years old. It's, it's pretty rare for a player to be drafted out of college. It happens from time to time. It's usually a late birthday or a guy who's on an accelerated uh, academic program to go to college a year early. But more often than not, these players get drafted out of high school or the USHL or the North American Junior League or whatever. But as soon as they start going to college after they've been drafted as an 18-year-old, it starts the clock running on that four-year window where they become an unrestricted free agent. But think about that for a minute. They're 18 years old, and they have to wait four years to become an unrestricted free agent. A junior player gets drafted at 18. How long does he have to wait to become an unrestricted free agent? He has to wait four years too. The difference is that there's a re-entry provision. Um, so the, 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 the bottom line difference really isn't that great, except that most junior players never go through the process of getting redrafted and then not signing again. They use their leverage to get their rights traded or they go into a re-entry draft and they don't do as well as they did before and nobody really wants them as a free agent anyways. So th there are parallels between the NHL rules on junior players and college players. And as for the why there's a difference between the two, my understanding of it is when they were formulating the collective bargaining agreement, the NHL did not want to be perceived as creating a system that would encourage college players to leave school. So the the provision of becoming an unrestricted free agent was almost there as an enticement saying, "Hey, listen, if you really if education's really important to you, then you can stay your 4 years, you can graduate from college and you get to call your shot." So there's a reward for sitting out 4 years. Um, I don't like calling it a loophole because it's not a loophole. It's, it's just the CBA, and it, the rule is intended to work as it intended. And I understand when, when teams get upset because a college, uh, one of their drafted college players chooses not to sign with them. I, I get it. Nobody likes to get rejected. But guess what? Nothing in life is forever. And just because a player gets drafted when he's 18 years old, it doesn't mean that the NHL team should own his rights in perpetuity. And they don't with, with junior players. They only have the junior players' rights for two years. And so if a really good junior player decided that he didn't want to go to the team that drafted him, he can go back in the entry draft. And two years later, he can declare himself a free agent. And the fact of the matter is that most of these guys, be it Adam Fox or Jimmy Vc or whoever, a lot of times these guys are 23 or 24 years old by the time they declare free agency. If a junior player wanted to follow the not sign for two years, get redrafted, and then not sign for another two years, he could be unrestricted at age 22. But no one likes that option because there's a lack of continuity. The nice part for Adam Fox is he's spending four years at Harvard if he so chooses to finish at Harvard or Jimmy, do the Jimmy VC thing. They're in college. They're getting a degree. They don't have to pick up and, and try to find a place to play. Um, in any case, that's my feeling on it. I don't have a problem with any of these players doing what's within their rights within the CBA. 
because NHL teams do with what's in their rights within the CBA all the time. So everybody who's criticizing Adam Fox and Chase Prisky and Jimmy VC and all these other guys, back off. It's not the feudal system anymore. Players have some rights. Uh, not a lot, but some rights in a draft system. And uh, they just choose to exercise them. I'm going to finish up this edition of the Bobcast with a, a quirky question um, and then a very heartfelt comment. Let's start with the quirky question. It comes from Jeff Voisin from Hanover, Ontario. Hey, Bob, long-time listener, first-time caller. Just a quick hypothetical. Not the puffy rubber boots pod variety, but a hypothetical nonetheless. An NHL goalie has a shutout goalie, and he is yanked by a concussion spotter. He is deemed okay and returns shortly afterwards and plays the rest of the game, zero goals against, but missed a few minutes while being checked out by the concussion spotter uh, because of the concussion spotter. It's not a shutout, is it? Seems cruel to lose out on a shutout when the goalie wasn't actually hurt. Thanks, Bob. Love the podcast. It's a quirky question because I didn't know the answer to it. So when I don't know the answer to a question on on something of this nature, I go to veteran NHL statsman, Benny Ercolani, who's been with the league a lot longer than I've been in the business. And uh, Benny informed me that um, it's not a shutout, at least not in the official crediting to that individual. It would become a shared shutout. It would be exactly the same. And I didn't even know this. If a, if a goaltender was having an equipment problem, um, say his mask broke and he couldn't, and the referee said, you're going to you're gonna have to get that mask fixed. Take whatever, go get it fixed. You got to put your backup goalie in. If that backup goalie comes in for 60 seconds and doesn't even face a shot, and then the other goalie comes back with his mask fixed, that's a shared shutout that does not go to the official credit of the individual who played the 59 minutes. In order for a goaltender to get full official credit for a shutout on his permanent record, he must play the full 60 minutes, or in the case of, uh, uh, I guess, an overtime game, 65 minutes. So there you have it. Um, No shutout for you if you're pulled for a concussion spotter. Uh, finally, I mentioned that I wanted to make a comment, and um, I, don't, I don't think we can end this podcast without making some reference to a, a couple of anniversaries this week. It was one year ago yesterday, April 4th, that we lost Jonathan Petra, the, uh, the Ottawa Senator fan. You might know him as the butterfly child. He was aff- afflicted with that horrible skin condition called EB. And uh, one year ago tomorrow, of course, April 6th, the Humboldt Broncos bus crash killed 16 of 29 on that bus. And really, I mean, forever altered far too many other lives. And and I don't think I'll ever be able to hit this time of the year without thinking of, of little Jonathan and the Broncos. Because for me, they're, they're very much linked and, and always will be. You know, while, while Jonathan did die on April 4th, the news of his passing didn't go public until the morning of April 6th, and we sadly know all too well how that day ended um, on the highway in, in, in Saskatchewan. And, and I know when TSN and the TSN team w- was in Humboldt in September, 
to broadcast the Broncos' first game back on ice this season. One of the stories that I didn't get a chance to tell on air was um, the reinforcement of that, of that connection between Jonathan Petra and, and the Broncos. I believe it was after the Broncos had lost game four and they were down three games to one versus Nipawin. Um So on, on one of the days after game four, but before that fateful game five that was never played, um, it's my, one of the kids on the Broncos told me that Bronco head coach Darcy Hogan gathered the team in the dressing room in, uh, in Humboldt and they, and they watched TSN's documentary, The Butterfly Child, as a team. Um, anybody who knows Darcy Hogan knows that he was a really big believer in not just uh, building hockey players and building a hockey team, but building young men. And, and he wanted his players to see what true inspiration was all about. And my God, Jonathan Petra was always all of that and then some. So, um, you know, at, at that time too, Darcy and the Broncos had no way of knowing that Jonathan was either dying or had just passed away. And certainly no one um, could have possibly foreseen what tragedy would unfold a day or two later on, on Highway 35 in Saskatchewan. Anyway, I, I only tell the story because as sad as these anniversaries are, and, and they are, there's no doubt about it, um, young Jonathan Petra and everyone associated with the humble Broncos, I don't know, they, they just showing us the way on how to be courageous and caring and strong in, in what's absolutely the worst possible circumstances any human being could possibly imagine. And, and I think all of that has been shown to us in the past year over and over and over again. Um, if you watch the documentaries that TSN had this week, 29 Forever, um, and, and some of the other Bronco-related programming and articles, um, Frank Cervelli on TSN.ca, um, Ryan Rashog fronted a lot of the, doc, well, the, the, the 29 Forever documentary that was produced by Josh Scheiman. Um, or you rewatch the Butterfly Child on YouTube, um, you, you just see the best and the worst, and then the best again uh, of what life has to offer. And it, it is so incredibly sad and painful, but it can also be incredibly inspiring. So um, thanks to everybody connected with uh, Humboldt, the Broncos, the families, um, for for being as, as open and sharing and caring with us as they have been. And the least we can do is try to return that favor every day, uh, not just at anniversary time. Anyway, um, I have thought a lot about Jonathan Petra and the Broncos this week, but mostly about those families and what it means to be humble and strong. So everyone, you know, please take care and, and just try to be as kind as you can to one another. And, and that's it for season three, episode number 14. Enjoy the playoffs, uh, the draft lottery. And uh, we'll be right back at you here in a couple of weeks on April 19th. Take care. All the best. Okay, that's it for the At TSN Hockey Every Other Friday Bobcast. Hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like to submit a question on hockey or just about anything else, email it to bobcast at bellmedia.ca. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T at bellmedia.ca. 
and we'll try to get it on the next Bobcast. Be sure to follow me on Twitter. That's at TSN Bob McKenzie. And for great hockey coverage all year round, follow the at TSN Hockey Twitter account and make tsn.ca your source for all things hockey, especially for the Tuesday and Thursday editions of Insider Trading with myself, Darren Dreger, and Pierre Lebrun. Thanks for tuning into the Bobcast. See you next time and have a great weekend.